Good morning, friends. Hey, thank you. Thanks. You know what? We can all stop. We can just go home. That feels great. Let me read to us from our text today, um, Mark 12, verses 28 and following. So one of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And besides him, there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. Have a seat, everyone. One week, Ancha, I'm just going to ask you to stay up there and just play under the entire sermon. I think it would really, I think it's what we need. Um, hey, everyone. Good morning. Uh, just a quick family business uh, to kick things off. I've heard a lot of really negative feedback on my faithless statements about our hometown baseball team last week. So I just want to say, this is how I protect myself. Um, I've lived in the state of Georgia, except for college, since 1988, and you build high walls in order to just survive. Um, but they're three and one. So um, I'm not going to say anything, because that'll ruin it, but... They're three and one, you know? So um, thank, you for, thank you for holding me accountable. Um, today's text is really, um, it's a wonderful text. I'm excited to get to talk about it today because it's so central to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, um, what it means to be a person, a person, what it means to be human. And um, uh, it, it's so central that when Jesus is asked the question, like, what is basically the thing that everything rests on? He says this. In, in Matthew's gospel, he says that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, which means that if these things are being observed, everything essentially is being observed that needs to be observed in the human life. Something so utterly central to the life of God's people that Jesus could say, if you're doing this, you're doing everything you need. There's this story in the rabbinic literature about this um, rabbi, uh, well, actually about a person who's, who's trying to be converted to Judaism. And it just says a, a non-Jew, that's the story. A non-Jew goes to Rabbi Shimei and says, convert me to Judaism, convince me of the truth of Torah. You have as long as I'm able to stand on this one foot. And uh, Rabbi Shimei grabbed a measuring rod that a builder would use and drove him out of his house. It's a great story. And then he goes to Rabbi Hillel, and he says the same thing, convert me to Judaism, you have as long to convince me of the truth of Torah as I am able to stand on this one foot. And Rabbi Hillel is able to convince this man of the truth of Torah because he says to him, whatever is hateful to you, do not do that to your neighbor. This is the whole of Torah, everything else is commentary. Go and learn what this means. And apparently that was enough to convince this guy, well, that makes a lot of sense. 
And so this conversation that we're like eavesdropping in right now of Jesus between these other religious rulers and scribes and so on is actually a conversation that was uh, contemporary. It was happening all around. It, can, it continues to happen today. How do we summarize what it means to be one of God's people? How do we tie it all up you know, into a single uh, cohesive thought? So we're going to begin today by saying this together, and we're going to do it in Hebrew. I know, pretty cool. So, um, and, and not just because I think Hebrew is beautiful or because I went to seminary and it's a chance to show off, or because uh, really I think it's like the chance to be able to say a thing with our mouth that Jesus said is pretty, is pretty great, pretty meaningful. So let's stand up. I'm going to coach you through this. We're going to do it twice. We're like back and forth, and then we'll read it all together, and then we'll go to the next slide and read it in English. So this is how it, you pronounce it. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. That's it. You got to get the... Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. All right, now, all together. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Have a seat. Three times a day, observant Jews say that prayer. They say it in Hebrew. They say it in the morning. They say it uh, at, at the end of the work day, they say it again before they get into bed. And they don't just say it three times a day. They actually surround themselves with a reminder of it. Uh, they take a little tiny scroll of kosher animal skin, and a rabbi hand writes on this scroll the first two paragraphs of the Shema, and they roll it up and put it in a mezuzah, a little tiny box, and they nail it actually to the right doorpost of the house at a slant on purpose. It, it has a story behind it. And they do that because they want to remember every single time they cross the threshold into their house and leave behind all the chaos, all the things circling around them, that they are now in the sanctuary in which the Lord our God is one and we love him with all our heart and mind and strength and understanding and soul. This is because in Deuteronomy 6, which is where the Shema comes from, the Lord says after, hero Israel, you should love the Lord your God, and so on and so forth. He says, you shall teach this to your children, and you shall make it as the frontlets of your eyes, meaning it is always before you, and you shall put it on the doorposts of your house. Three times a day and throughout the day and all part of life was drenched and soaked in this prayer of the Shema. And we're going to look at it today for the next 18 minutes. So you can imagine we're barely going to get our foot wet on what actually is available to us if you were to, say, spend your entire life thinking about this. Every day, three times a day. So let's begin with this word first, Shema. The first part of the commandment is to hear. And not to simply like hear like over here or like hear like I'm answering an email, but I'm watching the ball game in the background, but to like let the things that I'm hearing sink down into me so that I respond from what I'm hearing. In fact, the word can even be translated in Hebrew as like take action or take heed or even obey. So it's something that I'm taking into myself and I'm responding to fully. And of course, in order for that to happen, I need to let it sit for a long time. I need to let it kind of echo and reverberate again and again within me, which is what it means to shema. 
The Orthodox have a similar uh, sort of uh, practice. It's uh, the Jesus prayer you may have heard of or the breath prayer. And it's every single time they breathe in, they say, um, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Uh, Lord, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then they exhale, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so obviously you don't try to talk out loud because it sounds like, Lord Jesus Christ, you sound great. But you just, like while you're taking a deep breath, like, and they just do it again and again and again and again and again until you sink down into it, until the words begin to sort of vanish into just the, the surrounding airspace and you're just present with the Lord. And why do they do this? Why do they do this? Because, because, because it takes time to be with God. There's no substitute for just extended, quiet time. I remember for years I would listen to guys like Pete Scazzaro or Dallas Willard or Howard Thurman or whomever, and they would say, the most important thing we must be doing is silence and solitude. And I would be like, but silence and solitude can happen in the car, really, can't it? And they'd always be like, no. And I'd say, I'm going to try because I don't have the space or, the, or the, 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 the capacity to be silent. And one of the things that I've had to learn this season is that there's no substitute for space, for time, for letting something go down into yourself slowly. Uh, in fact, I've learned just from my own body, the way my mind is currently, if I'm not coming into a time of prayer super anxious, which sometimes I am, but if I'm not coming in super anxious and I've settled myself down, I'm breathing, I'm slowing myself down, it takes about 15 minutes for me to get quiet internally. It's a long time to sit there and do nothing, 15 minutes to get totally quiet and still and then to be with the Lord. But Jesus understood that this was part of what it meant to be a disciple, is you had to be willing to do this work to sink into something. That's why he will say at the end of a lot of his cryptic parables, something like, let the one who has ears to hear, let them hear, let them hear, because it's possible for you to hear this whole parable and to have never actually heard it. It's possible for you to read every word in that book and to never actually let it in. So let the one who has ears, let him hear. So there's a difference between hearing and hearing. And the command is meant to remind us, the Shema is meant to remind us that you and I must be people that soak in something. We have to linger. We need to create space and that there's just no substitute for it. Until we find ways for it, we're never going to be able to get into what this is actually offering to us. I don't know about you, but I tend to have more sort of like, a, like an Instant Pot spirituality sort of way of doing it. Like I want to be able to cook a stew in six minutes. And that's, that is, friends, it's not how we have, we need to be crock pot people. <laughs> we need to be low and slow, like the way that this works. Now, Instant Pots are great, but they don't do anything for the heart. And a lot of us are still, I mean, this is why our culture, I think, is fascinated with Instapots. Of course, all they are is rebranded pressure cookers. They've been around forever. But like, we're so fascinated. It's like, oh, you can do something that takes hours. You can do it in minutes. Like, right. It doesn't, you can't shema in minutes. You can't do it in three minutes. It helps. All this stuff helps. It's cumulative for sure. But listen, sink, soak, meditate, linger. Dallas Willard was asked once by a friend, if you had one word to describe Jesus, what would it be? And he thought about it for a while, like he always would, and then surprisingly said, relaxed. Jesus is relaxed. And when you read the Gospels, you see it. He gets agitated, clears the temple. He sees the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees who are mad at him for healing a crippled person on the Sabbath. He feels anger. But so much of the time we encounter Jesus, he's walking, 
He's interruptible. He's present. He's attentive to what's going on around him. He's attentive to what's happening in him with the Father. He's always listening sort of in multiple directions. What is God saying to me right now? What are these people needing? He's relaxed. The second thing we see in this text is that the thing we are meant to soak into is, to quote Bono, that love is the highest law. That is the second Bono quote, I think, since I came back from break. And I'm sorry about that. I will, also, I will stop. But that love is the highest law. Um, loving God and loving neighbor, these two things do not exist as two separate things, but rather are interconnected in the same question. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus just naturally, obviously says to love God and to love neighbor. And that is because the Bible insists, like 1 John says, this is the clearest of any of it, but like it says, if you say that you love God whom you have not seen, you cannot love your neighbor. All right, but you do not love your neighbor who you have seen, then you're a liar. So if you say you love God who's invisible, but you, but you, but you don't love the person who's right in front of you, then you're a liar, which means that there is a congruency in our hearts between how we feel about the people in front of us and how we actually are able to feel about God. Or to say it another way, we don't love God in the abstract. Like we actually tangibly love God through the people in front of us. That one of the dominant ways that God experiences love from me is in how I treat the people right in front of me. I say this at every wedding that I ever officiate. Some of you have heard me say this to you. The number one way you can love your spouse, or if you're single, the number one way you can love your people is, to, is for your own heart to sink down into the love of God because then you'll be able to go to your spouse, go to your people, not in manipulation, not out of all this need and insecurity because then you're not even able to love them. You're not able to be present to them. You're not even able to listen to them because you're just thinking about what you're going to say next because you're going to them with all of this expansive need. But if your heart is sunk down in the presence of God and you're spending time every day, every day, like with the Lord, letting him love you, you might actually be able to always have what the person in front of you needs. You might have access to it. The Holy Spirit might be flowing through you enough that you could love the person as you would want to love them in that moment. I believe the reason that God experiences love towards other people as love to himself is because we're his kids. And if you're a parent in here, you know this, I know this for sure, that one of the dominant ways that anyone can love me is by loving my children. In fact, it some way gets past all the other things that if someone like, is trying to love me directly, I have all these ways of metabolizing it and like, like, ah, that's not really, you don't really know who I am. But when someone just loves my kids, which isn't good, by the way, I'm just confessing sin. But if somebody <laughs> loves my kids, if somebody loves my kids, I just receive it as pure. It just comes to me, like it just goes right into me and I feel so seen and so, so appreciative and humbled. We're told to love God with all of our heart. That is, with the center of our being. The heart is not merely our emotions. It's, it's the will. It's the desires. It's the thing that runs and governs my life. You could think about it as like the central sort of like power center of the human life. Like, what is it that gets me to do this or not do this? It's my heart. And so to love God with my desires, to choose God, to choose him, to love him with all my mind, Dallas Willard also said, and I saw this a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, and I had a new, new thought around it, uh, but it, it, he says, one of the great things about the human self is that they are able to, one of the greatest potentials and powers of the human self is the ability to set, on, to set the mind on the thing that it will, 
to choose to think about what I will think about. And that is true. I will also say, if you're like me and you have struggles with mental health, you know that sometimes you can't decide what you're going to think about. And so I just want to, I just kind of caveat that as a way, like, let's be kind to ourselves and to one another. You can't always decide what you're going to think about, but you and I do have immense potential every day to decide what am I listening to? What am I reading? What am I ruminating on? And this is one of the great powers that we have to be able to love God with, what our, with, with what's on our brain. And then finally, to love God with all of our strength. When we do good for other people, we're loving him with our strength. And we do good with what, he's been, with what we've been given. But also when we, when we worship. This is why we come to church. It's why we stand up. I, if, I was in the back this morning, but if you ever scan the room when, when I'm in here, you know like, I'm, I, I'm pretty expressive in worship. And, and I, don't want you to, I don't want you to think that that's because like, I'm always just like drinking from the fire hose. Like, the, reason, the reason I'm expressive, listen to this, the reason I'm expressive is because my heart feels dead so much of the time, and I'm trying to direct it with my body. This is what the body is able to do. When you love the Lord your God with your strength, what you're essentially saying is like, I know that you feel flat as a pancake, but you know what is true. So open your arms, extend yourself, let God, like let yourself be led to God. And I'll tell you, friends, the reason I do it is because it works. This is what C.S. Lewis writes about in the Screwtape Letters. He says, never, never underestimate the power of the body to lead the spirit. That this is why people in all religious faiths, they bow, they stand, they jump, they dance. And this is why maybe you need to do more than stand there and hold coffee. This is why maybe you need to put your hands out. And don't think anyone's going to be paying attention to you. Trust me, I'm over there like scraping the ceiling. If anyone's drawing attention to themselves, it's me. No one will see your hands go up. It's an opportunity for us to lead ourselves because we're saying, I want to love you with my strength. And honestly, my heart feels far from you. I feel distracted. My mind is on a thousand things. And sometimes the only way I can love God is with my body because everything else feels outside the room. The only thing that I know is inside this room is this. And so I'm going to use this in that moment. And I'll just say one more thing about this whole idea of love because this really like settled on my heart this week. But um, we cannot love God or experience God's love if we hate ourselves either. We cannot love God if we don't love ourselves. Now, I know that, that might feel like a weird turn to take, but I really think it bears, it bears saying, especially in our day and age, because a lot of us are trying to do just that. A lot of us are excruciatingly brutal towards ourselves, nitpicking everything about ourselves, not loving the way we look or how we think or what our personality is like or how we come across. And we can, we can just sit in this place and then we wonder why we feel so far from God's love. And it's because our mindset is so incongruent with God in that moment that that has nothing to do with how God sees you. That that voice inside, that condemning voice is not coming from the Holy Spirit. It knows nothing of those words. We cannot love God and hate ourselves. One of my favorite songs is um, a song by a guy named uh, Andrew Peterson, and I'll just say, it is not a cool song. So if you go look this up this week, you'll be like, oh, this guy listens to lame music. Fine, I listen to lame music sometimes. But this song by Andrew Peterson is called Be Kind to Yourself, and he wrote it for his 13-year-old girl who was like many 13-year-old girls struggling with loving herself, with accepting herself. Instead, had decided that everything about herself was wrong, the way she looked, the way she acted, how shy she was, whatever it was. And she had come to this place of believing that actually the voices in her head that were constantly cutting her down were the true voices that she needed to listen to. And of course, some of us are still living that way, well past 13 years. 
So he wrote this song for her one night and then played it for her the next morning. And there's an amazing little music video on YouTube of her sitting at the piano and singing it with him. And you should go check it out and maybe cry, have a good cry. But here's what I love about this song is that, of course, he's coming to it from his perspective as a father. But at the same time, of course, echoing the voice of our father and how he sees us. He's wanting us to capture this idea that God, even though there's all this noise inside myself, what he says to you and me is, I love you just the way that you are. Be kind to yourself. This is one of the lyrics from it. He says, you've got all this emotion heaving like an ocean, and you're drowning in a deep, dark well. And I can hear it in your voice. If you only had a choice, you would rather be anyone else. But I love you just the way you are. I love the way he's made your precious heart. Be kind to yourself. I know that it might bother some people in here, and I'll just acknowledge it, to talk in a commandment about loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor and turning it into like loving ourselves. And, and that's because that's funded by a view of theology that says essentially like the only way we can really love God is by being nothing, you know. And so sometimes you end up taking this to some extremes. The lower that we view ourselves, the more we'll have a right view of God and his glory. And I just want to say that's not not true. I also am very opposed to either or thinking in most cases. I, I believe that it's totally possible to have a very right and humble view of myself that also accepts myself. And in fact, a lot of times what we call self-hatred is actually self-worship. It's actually just me being at the center of the whole thing and making the whole universe about my experience, whether it be good or bad, towards myself. And maybe one of the most loving and humble things we can do is to just accept ourselves as we are, to believe that God's word is true, and to move into the world now able to love other people because we're not obsessed with ourselves. Carl Jung, who's a Christian psychologist, famously wrote this. He goes, perhaps this sounds very simple, but simple things are always the most difficult. In actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple. And so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all of these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, yea, the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? Some of us are raised to believe that love of self is pride, and pride is sin, Pride can be sin, but love of self is no more incongruent with God's nature than love of neighbor. It's just aligning myself with how he sees the world. It's choosing to believe that the thing that makes me wonderful is that God loves me. The thing that makes you wonderful is that God loves you. And now I just live out of that alignment. Like, this is how he sees the world. This is how he sees me. Jesus has an opportunity to boil the entire life of humanity down to a single word, and he gives it a name, love. He says the whole thing is not simply about being right, as some of us would believe. It's not even about being holy, although you could argue that holiness and love are certainly connected in Jesus' mind. But it's love. And how kind am I actually towards those who I disagree with or who disagree with me or towards myself or towards God? What Jesus is inviting us into here, friends, is a way of life that I believe every one of us, if we could taste it for a minute, would go after it. We would say, I want that kind of life. I don't want any other, uh, I don't want any other substitute for that. 
And that's why the man at the end, he hears Jesus' words and he says, oh, you're right. And I love it. When anyone who looks at Jesus and is like, Jesus, I think you might be right about that. And Jesus is like, thanks. Um, <laughs> thank you. So I think you're right about that. And Jesus, this gets Jesus' attention because he's like, oh, you're right. All the all, loving your neighbor and loving God is greater than all whole burnt offerings. And this grabs Jesus' attention because what he's doing is he's echoing a, a deeply embedded Old Testament principle, which is this. To obey is better than sacrifice, is how it says it in 1 Samuel 15. Or Hosea 6 says, uh, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, what God is saying through his prophets again and again is I don't need you to do things for me to make me happy with you. I want you to partner with me in being my hands and feet in the world. And your sacrifice, he says it again and again through the minor prophets. He's like, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need the smoke on your altar. I don't care about your bulls and rams. I'm not here for your festivals, but let justice roll like a mighty stream. He says in Isaiah 58, is not this the fast that I require? It's like, oh, the one where we don't eat and we feel bad about ourselves. He goes, no, the fast that I require is this, that you would bring the homeless poor into your home, that you would, that you would feed those who are hungry in your midst. That you, would not, uh, that, that you would not persecute your workers, but that you would bring justice on the earth. This is the thing that I'm after. In other words, Jesus says again and again, the whole life is about this. Are you in partnership with God's work on the world, which is a work of love? That's it. Like the whole thing. Every person you meet today, every person you encounter this week, your own self, when you look at yourself in the mirror, every opportunity to choose to see as God sees, which is endlessly hopeful, always believing, always trusting, always redeeming. This is why 1 Corinthians 13 is so essential. It tells us what God feels like. He's patient. He's kind. He keeps no record of wrongs. He's always believing, always hoping, always enduring. That's what God is like towards us. That's how he feels about me. That's what he feels about my enemy. That's what he feels about all of us. This is what love is. And Jesus says, if you want to capture what life is about, the whole law, everything, it hangs on this idea. And this is love, 1 John 3.16 tells us, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.